Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hello there, and this is Rocky Deer with the State Bar of Texas podcast. I want to thank our partners at Legal Talk Network. You know, chances are you're listening to this on some kind of a device. Maybe it's maybe it's an iPhone, maybe it's an Android phone or a Samsung. Maybe it's on your computer, on your laptop, or on some kind of a tablet. Whatever it is, if you're like me, you've taken for granted the fact that, well, your computer exists and everything just kind of functions the way normally you'd want it to. There's a lot of legal issues, though, behind computers. And that's something as lawyers, sometimes we don't always appreciate. We might use computers in our legal practices, but do we really understand the law that goes behind computers? Well, I know at least one guy who does. His name is Ron Chichester. He's from Tomball, Texas, which is just outside of Houston. It's part of the greater Houston area. So to all the Houstonians, you've got a treasure in your midst. We've got Ron, what I, I call him the rocket scientist. Ron, the rocket scientist, Chichester. Ron, welcome. Hey, hey, nice to be here. So you're an expert in... It's not computer law, but it's the law of computers. Yes. Tell us about that. What do you mean by the law of computers? Well, essentially, uh, the law of computers deals with essentially any relation or any type of action that a person takes with another person that uses a computer. That's pretty much everything we do nowadays. Yes. These days and stuff, everything, pretty much everything involves a computer. Is that some type or another. I mean, your cell phone is a computer, your PC is a computer, uh, the Internet of Things, anything that's in the Internet of Things is also a computer. Well, even what we're doing now, this podcast, we're talking using computer technology. Yes. And we're broadcasting using computer technology. So everything that we're doing right now is computer related. Yes. So when you say the law of computers... Is this a big firm practice? Do you have a solo practice? How do you do this? I have a solo practice. It's best because, of, you know, from a conflict standpoint, uh, I used to be an associate with Baker Botts uh, and left the firm for a variety of reasons, but one of the big ones, of course, was conflicts. So in this particular area of the law, you have lots of little cases, and if you have lots of little cases, then oftentimes the firm is conflicted out, so you need to have a solo practice or, or a very small firm practice uh, if you're going to do that type of work. So give us maybe an example, and I know you, it's probably a very wide swath of types of cases that you handle, but maybe give us an example of a law of computers type matter that might come up. Obviously computer forensics. So if you're doing e-discovery, okay. then you're in that. If you're doing intellectual property, almost always you're doing that. So for e-discovery, you're getting information off of what we call the file system, either the cell phone or the PC or, so, or the cloud. If you're doing uh, like uh, intellectual property, oftentimes it deals with trade secret misappropriation. So an employee has taken files from the company and taken them somewhere else and using them for whatever reason, trying to trace what happened and things like that. And then you have the straight up intellectual property issues, the patent issues. You've done some invention and the invention involves a computer. That's the same thing. So you're using all of those different areas of the law that just happened to involve a computer. So we've all noticed, I think, that computers have, I don't know if they've taken over our lives or if they've just become, if we just become more dependent on them. But I imagine your practice has probably gotten a bit busier over the years. To say yeah, it, it's changed in character. There's actually a really good book out there. I forgot the author, but the name, the title of the book is called Trapped by the Net. 
Trapped by the net. Trapped by the net. Okay. And so as computers have become more ubiquitous, they have become an infrastructure. And I used the word ubiquitous earlier today. I was very proud of myself that I remembered it. That's like, that's like vocabulary like on steroids. That's awesome. Right. And, and, but most layers know what that is. So, and as it has become ubiquitous, and ubiquitous actually is the best word for it, mm. as it has become ubiquitous uh, and it is part of the infrastructure, then it has been subsumed in our lives. All right. And if you think about it, you know, the sidewalk is infrastructure and you walk down the sidewalk and you don't think twice about it. But sure. that is a technology that has been around and so much so that storefronts have been built around sidewalks and people walk down the sidewalks and the stores expect the people walking down the sidewalks to become customers. And it's the same thing with computers. Uh, people that use computers, and in fact, if you wanna pay your bills now, the most common way to do it is with a computer. Uh, and, and 10, 15 years ago, that was not the case. But that's interesting. You're kind of drawing this analogy, if you will, between the computer and the sidewalk, something that we use, both things that we use every day and we kind of, we traverse them, although, Albeit in, in different, different forms, right? We traverse both of those. So if there's something defective in a sidewalk and we trip over it, there's typically a premises liability type claim that we can bring. What happens in the computer context? If something goes wrong with the computer and our bill doesn't get paid or, you know, we're not able to access information that we needed that was crucial at a particular time, does that bring up issues? Is, that, is, is there kind of a straight analogy between those two areas of law? It brings up issues, but in a different way. Okay. Uh, if the law, as far as, you know, a bad sidewalk is far better established than the law of a bad software computer or a program not sure. performing or not functioning correctly. Okay. And so, uh, you know, when you have a bad sidewalk, you can point to either the owner of the property or the city who's supposed to maintain it. With a software program, all the warranties are disclaimed, even for fitness and, or uh, suitability for purpose, anything like that. And also everybody expects a software program to have bugs and mm -hmm. that the bugs will eventually get fixed, but uh, it's more of a laissez-faire aspect for computer software, much more so than other types of infrastructure. So now one of, one of the big issues that we keep hearing about is, I guess you might call them intelligent computers. The computers that are developing their own ability to judge and perform tasks. I guess the, the term is artificial intelligence, yes. AI. Have you been doing some work in that field? Yes, I've been doing quite a lot of work with that field. And actually, to explain it, I usually say, or usually get the analogy that a software program is a set of instructions that performs a certain operation based on a certain input. Okay, right? sure. And so artificial intelligence is essentially the same thing with experience. Okay. And each so software... It's able to do experiential learning. Right. Guess, and it, as the program is operated and used, it is actually learning and ga gathering experience. And it uses that experience to hopefully improve its performance. So as lawyers, is this an opportunity for us? Is this a sobering call? I mean, we're talking about computers now that presumably there's, there's a law of computers, but then it looks like computers are also able to learn things that we as lawyers might be used to just doing ourselves, right? So there's several things for lawyers to know. One is artificial intelligence, first of all, is having an effect on their practice. And, how so? Well, the biggest effect right now is more on their client base, that artificial intelligence is eating into their client base. It's 
for the most part, for many attorneys, it is reducing the number of people that can afford their services. Right. And if you look at the labor participation rate, it's right now, it's uh, last month I checked was April and it's 62.8%, which is the lowest since for about 40 years. And a chunk of that, not all of it, obviously, but a chunk of that, a big chunk of it actually, is automation. Okay. Uh, the internet has destroyed more jobs than it has created. What types of jobs are? Are these the types of jobs where people could already afford lawyers? Or, you know, because there's, there's been talk, right, about how there's an access to justice problem. And yes. people who are maybe below a certain income level can't typically afford very highly skilled legal services. So what types of jobs and incomes are being affected by well, any kind automation? Of, yeah, any kind of job that is repetitive, that's mm-hmm. subject to automation. Any kind of job that is rules-based, that if you, you know, have a certain condition, you take a certain act. Mm-hmm. Any type of uh, job like that is automatable. Uh, any type of job that deals with a computer network or deals with a software program ultimately is automatable. So car driving, you see driverless cars mm-hmm. through AI. Uh, so truck drivers, uh, taxi drivers, their jobs are on the line. For uh, accountants, because they're very rules-based and they, all the data is all in electronic form. Sure. So those jobs are very automatable. The argument I hear about automation is that you've got a higher accuracy when you've got an artificial intelligence that is running a particular task. It's cheaper and, and the number of mistakes is far fewer. Yeah, I have a Uber speech, okay. if you will. Well, sure. Uh, because uh, I go up to New York and, and uh, fairly often, and I take a lot of Ubers. And the about, state bar is neither is neither endorsing nor making any comment about Uber or this can be I'm Lyft kidding. or I'm kidding. whatever. Sure, I know. Yeah. I'm kidding. Uh, but just to pass the time, right? Uh, they ask me, "What do I do?" And I say, "Well, yeah. I do I do cyber law and artificial intelligence and stuff." And they say, "Oh, am I going to lose my job?" And I say, of course you are. And <laughs> do they drop you off right there? They stop the car? No, they're very nice. I mean, many of them are they're just wonderful, which, which would be a terrible loss for a driverless car because then I would just be looking at my cell phone, uh, which is a bad thing. And I enjoy, actually, this, uh, the conversations I have. I meet a lot of really cool people in, in Uber and Lyft and all the other ones. So there really is something to be lost, but it will be lost. And what happens, what, when I tell them, I say, look, okay, let's say... Because they, they all say, I'm a better driver than a driverless car. And I'll say, you're right. In fact, you're probably twice as good. Let's say you're twice as good as a driverless car is right now. Right. And they feel good about that. And I said, oh, by the way, uh, there's something called Moore's Law. And that the computer that is running uh, the driverless car right now is going to have a brain transplant in a year and a half to two years. And it's going to have twice the computing capacity that it does now. And oh, by the way, the software is going to be way more than twice as good. And so in two years hence, that car will be every bit as good as you. And oh, by the way, two years from hence, that two years, four years from now, it will be four times better. And then eight times better, then 16 times better. And oh, by the way, these com- all these cars and stuff are going to be networked. And so they'll all be talking to each other. And so you could easily have a car talking to 10,000 other cars. To make sure they don't hit each other. They'd make sure they hit each other, but also to know which street has all the potholes or which street is blocked to get you to your destination quicker, smoother, faster. And oh, by the way, the car doesn't have a bad day. The car doesn't have a potty break. The car can run 24-7. Oh, and by the way, if you like the car a lot, you can make 10,000 copies of them. But as lawyers, we're not, we're not drivers. 
So you think we're safe? No. Lawyers are definitely not safe. Lawyers have several things. One is we have to have clients. If our clients can't afford us because they're not working, that's a problem for lawyers. Sure. Okay. Then the other aspect is uh, that there are processes, there are things that are done by lawyers oftentimes that are subject to automation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm writing a contract for a client, and I write a lot of technology contracts, and so part of what I do is type up the information onto an electronic document. Right. And in that process, some of my thought processes are very legal and I'm trying to formulate how to go through and write the license or the technology agreement for my client. But a lot of that process is simply typing the words into a document. And all of that aspect of it is automatable. And so the realm of what a lawyer is going to do is going to start shrinking. And the hard part that's the, the good part about a lawyer is being able to take the abstract concepts and take the law and apply the law and, and do all the things that lawyers are really, what do we go to law school for, right? And, and that aspect of it is relatively safe, not completely safe, but safer than the other aspects that lawyers do. And so the things that the lawyers do, like counseling clients or, or taking information in and listening to the clients, more and more of that is going to be automated. So let's, let's go into the future. Let's say we go, you're envisioning this happening fairly quickly based yes, on your numbers. Yes, very, almost certainly within the practice period of everyone listening to this podcast. Okay, so now let's say we fast forward 50 years, 30 years, whatever number you want to but 10 forward. at the most. Okay. So Seven. let's say so let's say 10 years. Okay. 10 years down the road. There's artificial intelligence that is running almost everything. And so cars are automated, the practice of law is automated, and there's droves and droves and droves. A majority of the world is out of work. What happens then? The system falls apart. Okay. Do you see maybe there being a pushback because people want to have that person-to-person -person contact. So Although you, you alluded to this earlier, that when you're riding in, your, in, in a car, whether it be with Uber or Lyft or a taxi cab or whatever, you're having a conversation with another human being. If that was a self-driving automated car, number one, if, everybody, if nobody has a job, then nobody's taking cars anymore. They're all sitting in one place, presumably, or they're walking because they can't afford the cars. So you may not even need a driverless car, but let's just say people are taking a car someplace. Do you envision them wanting that sense of community where they can reach out and talk to another person and have that, that contact? I always want that when something goes wrong with my telephone service or whatever and I get this automated system. Right. Uh, yeah, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out how I can trick the system so that I can actually talk to a human being. Right. Right, so that the human being knows how to solve the problem and get myself out of that automated menu. I, but theoretically, I, under your vision... Automation is going to get to the point where you won't dread that automated menu. It's going to know what to do, and it's going to have a conversation with you. It's going to be able to interpret and hear your tone and, and make those decisions, right? Or well, is... you will have the option to go and have a human do something for you. If you really want to do that, there will be a market for humans, but you will pay a premium for that. And what often happens, just the same thing with automated teller machines, or the machines you have at a grocery store, right. the self-check, the tellers, right? And, and those are taking out people. And my 
I always go to a human teller because I want at least some money staying within the community employing people. My wife doesn't care about that, and she'll just go to the automatic kiosk and give H-E-B or Kroger more money, uh, and she's actually, in a way, uh, taking away the teller's job. And that type of automation destroys jobs. And what happens for her is she thinks she's reducing the cost of the grocery bill, which is not right. But what she is doing is she's able to do it herself and she doesn't have to have human interaction. And it's the same thing with automated teller machines. They're more convenient, they're, more, they're around, they, you can run them 24 seven. And so that convenience makes up for the lack of human interaction. So it's, it's interesting actually that on the one hand, you're, all of your work is predicting this, this highly automated future, but it sounds like you really don't want that. That's not where you if, want the world to go to if yeah, you had if your druthers. You, if you really want to mess up the capitalist system, then just take it to its logical conclusion quicker with AI. Okay. But you're talking about how people lose their jobs and you're wanting to keep those jobs in the community. So your individual actions are aimed at trying to prevent AI from taking over, but you still see a future where AI will take over. Is that, is that a yeah, fair I, assessment? Well, I, the way the system is right now, AI is going to win. I, and because the people who have capital are going to use AI to reduce their expenditures. Mm. And so I had a client that made robots, mm. which I thought were really cool, but uh, they were for manufacturing systems. And three years ago, the robots sold for $18,000 each, and they would eliminate three people. And, and today? <laughs> and today they're $15,000 and last three years and eliminate three or four people. Okay. Right. So the cost of the automation is going down and they don't take vacations. They don't have potty breaks. They don't get mad. They don't form a union and they do exactly what you tell it to do. Now, sometimes if you tell it wrong, then it will make lots of mistakes. But if you tell it right and get it going, everything works really, really well. So what about our role as lawyers? What do we need to do to try to adapt to what's happening in AI? How can we prepare ourselves? How do we prepare our clients? What's your... Your the, prediction for the that. The biggest take for lawyers is they need to prepare society for a period of mass unemployment. And How do we do that? That's, that's a tall order. That is a tall order, and I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, other than organize, wake up, and see what's coming down the line. Because essentially what you were talking about, that kind of pushback that you mentioned earlier, there was a term for that. They're called Luddites. Right? And, and Luddites uh, were people that suffered during the first uh, Industrial Revolution. Hmm. And we're seeing essentially another Industrial Revolution. I mean, the first Industrial Revolution, you could say, automated manpower or muscle power. Sure. Uh, and the second, uh, this Industrial Revolution is automating brain power. Wow. Okay. Right. And so you're going to get the same kind of pushback. And it took society many years, several decades to subsume and change the infrastructure and change how people did things and changed people's outlook about what they could do for their future and for their careers. The problem with this particular one is that whole process, instead of taking decades, is only taking a few years. And so we're seeing an enormous amount of dislocation. We're seeing a lot of heartache. We're seeing a lot of, what am I going to do with my life? And, and the society, and it's obviously a much bigger society now than it was 200 years ago. And this will happen to everybody because even if I'm understanding you correctly, even 
investment bankers will get automated and eventually even corporate CEOs will get automated. Actually, there are out right there right now, there are things called uh, distributed autonomous organizations, DAOs. And uh, for lawyers speak, it would be like AKA a digital corporation where there are no employees. And in fact, the reason for that is one of the most expensive elements of a corporation the is executives. the salaries of yeah. the, the executives. So they, by demanding such high salaries and, and bonuses and such, they have made themselves ripe for automation. And oh, by the way, if you go compare them to AI, they make fewer mistakes. So the AI makes fewer mistakes. You know, uh, actually, I, I talked to a CEO once and I said, you know, how, how is it that you lead a you know, big company and stuff like that? And his response was, uh, it's all I can do just trying not to make mistakes. But with the DAO, basically the whole operation is encompassed in software. There are major companies. In fact, 75% of all software development is by companies for themselves. Most of the companies here in Houston and elsewhere in Texas and stuff have millions and millions of lines of computer code that run their operations that are called mission critical applications. And these operations run, and without them, the company could not function. And eventually, those are the things that are getting attention. And developers will add more and more capability to that software and need fewer and fewer people. Now, as these automated systems continue to grow and adapt, is it possible that they learn the wrong things and make mistakes or go the wrong direction? Yes, uh, certainly. If they're taught incorrectly, they will make mistakes. Or if they just learn incorrectly, right? Well, uh, actually, a a case I was handling up in New York uh, with a New York client, they had a situation where they were using AI to make a decision whether or not to loan people money. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that, one of the factors, uh, AI needs data. And then, in fact, all the, the cell phones and all this information that people are churning out or generating and stuff that is being picked up by the Googles and Amazons and all those other companies that they get the data is the state is sold. And, and this was the case with the bank. The bank had all the information about how many were non-performing loans and the government required that we, you know, they track, you know, the racial, pro, uh, racial profile mm-hmm. of, of, you know, who was buying where and all this other stuff. And so the AI had that data available and subsumed it into its learning process. And then made biased well, decisions that we would think are biased. Well, it didn't know it was a biased decision. It didn't have any of the knowledge of the racial tones or issues about that. It just said, well, that was a factor. And this, I guess this, it was what do you call a disparate impact. Maybe. Right. And it did have a disparate impact. And the jurisdiction would basically say you can't use race as a factor of making that decision. Right. So the AI had already learned all this stuff. Hmm. And it had race built into the AI. And so the the company was like, well, how do we get this AI out or how do we excise it? Or, and the answer from the engineers was, we can't excise it out without ruining it. It would be just like giving the AI a frontal lobotomy. It'll just be a zombie at the end. It won't work. And so the company didn't want to ruin the AI for other jurisdictions that didn't have that, that problem, that didn't have their restriction. And so... They wanted to keep their AI because it was very useful, cut down their non-performing loans, and it was very beneficial to the financial institution. But these issues with different jurisdictions were popping up. And so we actually, the way to, to get around that, at least in that case, was we had to add some extra AI at the end for those specific jurisdictions to try to unbias it out. Hmm. So, but that took humans to add that AI in, right, which is but, ironic. Right, and, right. Uh, yeah, but you still had to understand how the AI worked. And, there, and there's quite a specialization. I mean, you know, it's not 
that easy to do. I mean, if you're going to write AI, you have to know linear algebra, you have to know calculus, you have to know several other, it's mostly math. I, I learned most of that in second grade. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so most of the rest of us learned it in, you know, late high school, or early college. Uh, and, and I'm just good like that. Yeah, yeah, you're good. And so most people don't have that kind of technical background. I must say it's, it's a disturbing topic, but it's a fascinating one that you're coming out with. And this is, this isn't that you want automation to take over. You just see that it's happening. It's, it's, it's what's going to happen based on your, your research of the world, as it were. Right. But for lawyers, it's going to affect the, the profession much more profoundly. Hmm. Because when you use AI, and let's say the AI is doing some type of what would have, if, if it were a human, it would have been giving you legal advice. But since you were using a software program, it's not the practice of law. Mm. Right. And so there's going to be software programs out there soon, in fact, which will go in and you will tell an agent, it'll be an artificial agent, that you want to strike a contract with somebody and you don't care who, just somebody could fulfill certain requirements and you say what you want and also what you will live with. And the agent will go in and essentially, like a reverse auction, go around and find other agents that are selling these services and actually uh, strike the contract and automatically put that contract into code that can sit on a server and administrate the contract or put it on a blockchain so that it all can be viewed and all the, all the monetary transactions and such can be subsumed into the blockchain through a cryptocurrency. Wow. Okay. So for a transactional attorney, yeah. that's, that's an anathema. That pretty much puts them out of business. And that contractual work is an $80 billion a year business. But then wouldn't that be unauthorized practice of law? No, because you're using a software program. Ah, okay. So that's the workaround. That's the workaround. And so you could have a corporation, like, I'm not saying Google's doing this, but, you know, think about it. If, if Google wanted to go in and, and say, look the actual cost of getting a contract is so low now because of AI, it's not worth trying to sell our legal services to draft the contract. Another business model would say, here, we're on this you know, Google contract, and I don't mean to pick on Google or whatever, right, but right, they sure. could do this, uh, so Google contract. And so businesses say, oh, I'm not gonna go to a lawyer, I'm gonna go to Google contract. And Google contract has this reverse auction contract site right. and it add in, all right? So Google makes money by knowing these two companies are making this contract over this stuff. And oh, by the way, since the computer is doing it, it's not privileged. So the companies don't get any kind of confidentiality, right. but they pay for that through the fact that the service is free. So Google doesn't really, it doesn't cost Google very much money to go and draft the contract because it's all automated, but they get the information about who's doing, selling what or doing what, and which for them is vastly more valuable. And, and so there's a business model there, right? Entirely done with AI, no lawyers. So let's say we got some, some lawyers that want to contact you to find out more about this, maybe learn about this field or, or see how they can adapt or what they need to do. If, if somebody wants more information, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, I have a website. Actually, I have two websites. Uh, I have ronaldchichester.com, which I do a lot for my AI work and software development work. Uh, but I also have my law firm website, which is texascomputerlaw.com. That might be easier to remember. Ronald Ch Well, let's spell out Chichester. C-H-I-C-H-E-S-T-E-R. Chichester. We did that like tag team spelling. That's right. Yeah, like if, if we could do like a double spelling bee, we might actually be able to win. You and I together. We could, we could beat some of those eighth graders who keep winning every year. I don't think it works that way. Dang. Yeah, well, maybe we can develop an AI that will 
that yes. will beat them. Is that the better idea? Uh, yes, but uh, do it quick because it's for, already happening. Well, for Texas <laughs> lawyers, the way it's going to work is if you know uh, how to do AI, you can get a competitive edge right now. If you don't do AI, you will be at a competitive disadvantage quickly. And in about five years hence, if you don't understand AI and are able to apply it, you won't have a job at all. Well, then they need to get in touch with you to find out what they need to know. Yes. So all AI, it's, it's going to be just like electronic evidence or whatever. It's all going to be subsumed and it's all going to be expected. So attorneys, if, if you look at how the practice of law has not kept pace from an automation standpoint with other industries, then the legal system is lagging. Uh, look what happened with education. Education had lagged the automation process for many years, and now you have mass online uh, classes, mocks, right, where you're, getting, you're learning differently, you're learning online, but there you have one teacher having hundreds or thousands of students. Sure. Okay, there's like MIT OpenCourseWare. The same thing is going to happen with lawyers, where uh, instead of having, instead of billing your time for one client, you're going to have to build your same time for many clients. And computers can handle that one-to-many relationship. Right now, humans cannot because the practice of law and the way the legal system is set up, it is forbidden to do a one-to-many relationship that computers will able to do. And that alone is going to have a huge impact on whether or not, you know, whether or not you're going to be able to afford to practice. This is fascinating stuff. Well, you know, this has been an eye-opening episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast. So, Ron, thank you for joining us. Thank you. This was a lot to chew on and a lot to unpack. You know, we want to thank our friends at Legal Talk Network and for, for joining us and for helping to make this happen. Please do check us out at LegalTalkNetwork.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, if you find it fascinating and helpful to you, please go on to Apple Podcasts, rate us, or go on to Google Play or your favorite podcast app. And let us know how we're doing and let us know what we can do to, to bring you some, some more useful content like what you just heard here today. We want to thank you for coming on this ride into the future of AI. And remember, life's a journey. So thank you for tuning in. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.